Section 7 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2, edited by Charles F. Horn, Rosita Johnson, and John Rod. Retreat of the 10,000 Greeks, 401-399 BC, Xenophon. The expedition of the Greeks, generally known as the Retreat of the 10,000, was conducted by Xenophon, a Greek historian, essayist, and military commander. Xenophon was a pupil of Socrates, of whom he left a famous memoir. In 401 BC, he accepted the invitation of his friend Roxenis of Boetia, a general of Greek mercenaries, to take service under Cyrus the Younger, brother of Artaxerxes Menemen, king of Persia. Cyrus had considered himself as deeply wronged by his older brother, who had thrown him into prison on the death of their father, Darius. Escaping from prison, he formed a design to wrest the throne from Artaxerxes. For this purpose, he engaged the forces of Proxenus, and to this army Xenophon attached himself. The rendezvous was Sardis, from which the army marched east under the pretext of chastising the revolting mountaineers of Sidia. Instead of attacking the Sidians, the followers of Cyrus proceeded east through Asia and Babylonia till they met the forces of Antaxerxes at Cunexa. A furious battle took place, and the rout of the king's army had begun when Cyrus, elated with a victory that seemed just within his grasp, challenged his brother to single combat. In the duel that ensued, Cyrus was slain. Roxenes had already fallen, and the virtual command of the Greek army soon devolved upon Xenophon, who thereupon began the famous retreat. A vivid account of battles, and of hardships endured from the cold in the struggle through mountain snows, through almost impassable forests, and across bridgeless rivers, is given in Xenophon's Anabasis, the celebrated work in seven books, which forms the classical narrative of the campaign and the retreat. Soon after the death of Cyrus, in September B.C. 401, the seizure and the murder of the leading Greek generals by the treacherous Persian satrap, Tisophernes, placed the Greek army in great peril. Xenophon, who now took practical command, counseled and exhorted the surviving leaders, and on the next day the Greeks formed in a hollow square, the baggage in the center, and began their retreat, which led them along the Tigris to the territory of the Kardachi, Kurds, through Armenia, and across Georgia, the enemy often harassing them. At the point where the climax of the story, which is presented here, may be said to begin, the Greeks have entered Armenia, passed the sources of the Tigris, and reached the Telebas, having made a treaty with Tiribazis, governor of the province, and discovered his insincerity and that he was ready to attack them in their passage over the mountains, they resolved upon a quick resumption of their march. When in the fifth month of the retreat, the Greeks at last from the hilltop beheld the Oexene, they set up a cry, the sea, the sea, which has echoed through succeeding ages as one of the great historic jubilations of humanity. At the end of the retreat, their numbers were reduced to about 6,000, 
and from the starting point at Kunaksa to the middle of the southern coasts of the Black Sea, they had traveled as much as 2,000 miles. From Ephesus to Kunaksa and thence to the Black Sea region, they had marched in 15 months, February 401 BC to June 400, and nine months more passed before they joined the Spartan army in Asia Minor, and their task was fully accomplished. Their great performance is regarded as having prepared the bay for Alexander's triumphant advances in the east. The young conqueror on the eve of the Battle of Isis declared that he owed inspiration to the feet of the Ten Thousand. It was thought necessary to march away as fast as possible before the enemy's force should be reassembled and get possession of the pass. Collecting their baggage at once, therefore, they set forward through a deep snow, taking with them several guides, and having the same day passed the height on which Tiribatius had intended to attack them, they encamped. Hence they proceeded three days' journey through a desert tract of country, a distance of fifteen parasangs, to the river Euphrates, and passed it without being wet higher than the middle. The sources of the river were said not to be far off. From hence they advanced three days' march through much snow and a level plain, a distance of fifteen parasangs. The third day's march was extremely troublesome, as the north wind blew full in their faces, completely parching up everything and benumbing the men. One of the ogres, in consequence, advised that they should sacrifice to the wind, and a sacrifice was accordingly offered when the vehemence of the wind appeared to everyone manifestly to abate. The depth of the snow was a fathom, so that many of the baggage cattle and the slaves perished with about thirty of the soldiers. They continued to burn fires through the whole night, for there was plenty of wood at the place of encampment, but those who came up late could get no wood. Those, therefore, who had arrived before and had kindled fires, would not admit the late comers to the fire unless they gave them a share of the corn or other provisions that they had brought. Thus they shared with each other what they respectively had. In the places where the fires were made, as the snow melted, there were formed large pits that reached down to the ground, and here there was accordingly opportunity to measure the depth of the snow. From hence they marched through snow, the whole of the following day, and many of the men contracted the bulimia. Xenophon, who commanded in the rear, finding in his way such of the men as had fallen down with it, knew not what disease it was. But as one of these acquainted with it told him that they were evidently affected with bulimia, and that they would get up if they had something to eat, he went round among the baggage, and wherever he saw anything eatable he gave it out, and sent such as were able to run to distribute it among those diseased, who as soon as they had eaten, rose up and continued their march. As they proceeded, Chrysophis came, just as it grew dark, to a village, and found at a spring in front of the rampart some women and girls belonging to the place fetching water. The women asked them who they were, and the interpreter answered in the Persian language that they were people going from the king to the satrap. They replied that he was not there, but about a parasang off. 
However, as it was late, they went with the water carriers within the rampart to the headman of the village, and here Chrysophis, and as many of the troops as could come up encamped, but of the rest such as were unable to get to the end of the journey, spent the night on the way without food or fire, and some of the soldiers lost their lives on that occasion some of the enemy too who had collected themselves into a body pursued our rear and seized any of the baggage cattle that were unable to proceed fighting with one another for the possession of them such of the soldiers also as had lost their sight from the effect of the snow or had their toes modified by the cold were left behind it was found to be a relief to the eyes against the snow if the soldiers kept something black before them on the march and to the feet if they kept constantly in motion and allowed themselves no rest and if they took off their shoes in the night but as to such as slept with their shoes on the straps worked into their feet and the soles were frozen about them for when their old shoes had failed them Shoes of raw hides had been made by the men themselves from the newly skinned oxen. From such unavoidable sufferings, some of the soldiers were left behind, who, seeing a piece of ground of a black appearance, from the snow having disappeared there, conjectured that it must have melted, and it had in fact melted in a spot from the effect of the fountain which was sending up vapor in a wooded hollow close at hand. Turning aside thither, they sat down and refused to proceed farther. Xenophon, who was with the rear guard, as soon as he heard this, tried to prevail on them by every art and means not to be left behind, telling them at the same time that the enemy were collected and pursuing them in great numbers. At last he grew angry, and they told him to kill them as they were quite unable to go forward. He then thought it the best course to strike a terror if possible, into the enemy that were behind, lest they should fall upon the exhausted soldiers. It was now dark, and the enemy were advancing with a great noise, quarreling about the booty that they had taken, when such of the rear guard as were not disabled started up and rushed toward them, while the tired men, shouting as loud as they could, clashed their spears against their shield. The enemy, struck with alarm, threw themselves among the snow into the hollow, and no one of them afterward made himself heard from any quarter xenophon and those with him telling the sick men that the party should come to their relief next day proceeded on their march but before they had gone from astadia they found other soldiers resting by the way in the snow and covered up with it no guard being stationed over them they roused them up but they said that the head of the army was not moving forward Xenophon, going past them and sending on some of the ablest of the peltasts, ordered them to ascertain what it was that hindered their progress. They brought word that the whole army was in that manner taking rest. Xenophon and his men, therefore, stationing such a guard as they could, took up their quarters there without fire or supper. When it was near day, he sent the youngest of his men to the sick, telling them to rouse them and oblige them to proceed. At this juncture, Christopher sent some of his people from the village to see how the rear were faring. The young men were rejoiced to see them, and gave them the sick to conduct to the camp, while they themselves went forward, and before they had gone twenty stadia, found themselves at the village in which Christopher was quartered. When they came together, it was thought safe enough to lodge the troops up and down in the village. 
Chrysophus accordingly remained where he was, and the other officers, appropriating by lots the several villages that they had in sight, went to their respective quarters with their men. Here Polycrates, an Athenian captain, requested leave of absence, and taking with him the most active of his men, and hastening to the village to which Xenophon had been allotted, surprised all the villagers and their headmen in their houses, together with seventeen cults that were bred as a tribute for the king, and the headman's daughter, who had been but nine days married. Her husband was gone out to hunt hares, and was not found in any of the villages. Their houses were underground, the entrance like a mouth of a well, but spacious below. There were passages dug into them for the cattle, but the people descended by ladders. In the houses were goats, sheep, cows, and fowls with their young. All the cattle were kept on fodder within the walls. There were also wheat, barley, leguminous, vegetables, and barley wine in large bowels. The grains of barley floated in it even with the brim of the vessels, and reeds also lay in it, some large and some smaller. Without joints and these, when any one was thirsty, he was to take in his mouth and suck. The liquor was very strong, unless one mixed water with it, and a very pleasant drink to those accustomed to it. Xenophon made the chief man of his village sup with him, and told him to be of good courage, assuring him that he should not be deprived of his children and that they would not go away without filling his house with provisions in return for what they took, if he would but prove himself the author of some service to the army till they should reach another tribe. This he promised, and to show his goodwill, pointed out where some wine was buried. This night, therefore, the soldiers rested in their several quarters, in the midst of great abundance, setting a guard over the chief, and keeping his children at the same time under their eye. The following day Xenophon took the headman and went with him to Chrysophus, and wherever he passed by a village he turned aside to visit those who were quartered in it, and found them in all parts feasting and enjoying themselves, nor would they anywhere let them go till they had set refreshment before them. And they placed everywhere upon the same table lamb, kid, pork, veal, and fowl, with plenty of bread both of wheat and barley. Whenever any person, to pay a compliment, wished to drink to another, he took him to the large bowl where he had to stoop down and drink, sucking like an ox. The chief they allowed to take whatever he pleased, but he accepted nothing from them. Where he found any of his relatives, however, he took them with him. When they came to Chrysophus, they found his men also feasting in their quarters, crowned with wreaths made of hay, and Armenian boys in their barbarian dress, waiting upon them, to whom they made signs what they were to do as if they had been deaf and dumb. When Chrysophus and Xenophon had saluted one another, they both asked the chief man, through the interpreter who spoke the Persian language, what country it was. He replied that it was Armenia. They then asked him for whom the horses were bred, and he said that they were a tribute for the king and added that the neighboring country was that of Calebes, and told them in what direction the road lay. 
Xenophon then went away, conducting the chief back to his family, giving him the horse that he had taken, which was rather old, to fatten and offer in sacrifice, for he had heard that it had been consecrated to the sun, being afraid indeed that it might die, as it had been injured by the journey. He then took some of the young horses, and gave one of them to each of the other generals and captains. The horses in this country were smaller than those of Persia, but far more spirited. The chief instructed the men to tie little bags round the feet of the horses and other cattle when they drove them through the snow, for without such bags they sunk up to their bellies. When the eighth day was come, Xenophon committed the guy to Chrysippus. He left the chief all the members of his family except his son, a youth just coming to mature age. Him he gave in charge to Episthenes of Amphipolis, in order that if the father should conduct them properly, he might return home with him. At the same time they carried to his house as many provisions as they could, and then broke up their camp and resumed their march. The chief conducted them through the snow, walking at liberty. When he came to the end of the third day's march, Christophus was angry at him for not guiding them to some villages. He said that there was none in the part of the country. Christophus then struck him, but did not confine him, and in consequence he ran off in the night, leaving his son behind him. This affair, the ill-treatment and neglect of the guide, was the only cause of dissension between Christophus and Xenophon during the march. Episthenes conceived an affection for the youth, and taking him home, found him extremely attached to him. After this occurrence, they proceeded seven days' journey, five parasangs each day, till they came to the river Phasis, the breadth of which is a plethrum. Hence they advanced two days' journey, ten parasangs, when on the pass that led over the mountains into the plain, the Chalabis, Tauki, and Phisians were drawn up to oppose their progress. Chrysophis, seeing these enemies in possession of the height, came to a halt at a distance of about thirty stadia that he might not approach them while leading the army in a column he accordingly ordered the other officers to bring up their companies that the whole force might be formed in line End of section seven.